Thanks to Midriff's sponsor, Earthquaker Devices. Earthquaker Devices are continually identified as leaders in the music gear industry for their commitment to creating a better, more inclusive, diverse, and welcoming music culture. You've probably seen it yourself, right? They are intentional in this work, and they take the time to do it well, and you can see it in almost everything they do, right? From sponsoring podcasts like this one to the representation in social media and artists they endorse, right? And there's probably other things that you, we're not even seeing, right, that are behind the scenes. And then there's their truly unique, creative, inspiring pedals. Did I mention they make pedals? They're made in by hand in Akron, Ohio by like a whole pile of really, really awesome folks. Their pedals are useful and easy to use tools for like any instrument as a guitar, bass, synth, drums, whatever. And they make pretty much every type of pedal under the sun. Whether you want an octave pedal, you want a distortion pedal, you want a fuzz, you want some modulation, they've got it for you, including a few super affordable pedals that you can grab for under $100, right? Amazing. If you hear folks sing their praises, there is a reason why. And I personally played Earthquaker pedals for over 10 years, and I'm proud to have them as sponsors on this podcast and to have been able to work with them as well. And you can learn more about Earthquaker Devices at EarthquakerDevices.com. Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I'm your host, Hillary Jones. Super jazzed to be with you today and to be digging into a topic that is near and dear to my heart and potentially yours as well, anticipatory armor in music retail or like getting your hackles up when you're getting all nervous when you're about to go into a music store. We'll dig into that in depth here in just a moment. Before we do that, a few quick items. So first of all, I am in the process of diving deep into merch land. And by the time this episode drops, you should be able to grab some sweet new merch on my website uh, featuring you know, a lot of the topics actually covered in this podcast related to gender diversity and gear. And if you're into that, it will be likely right up your alley. It's a great way to support the podcast and to get something cool in the process. And I'll be sharing pics on social media and there will be a link in the show notes about that as well. Also, I'm in the preparatory stages of an updated version of uh, my recent online course, No Stare We Denied, Creating Welcoming Music Retail Spaces for Managers, which will be happening in May after NAM. So if that's something that you might be interested in or you want to know more, shoot me a note about that and I'll make sure to get you info when registration opens. And if that's not for you, maybe you're not a music retail manager, but you know one, please share it with that person and um, get it out there for me, please. I'd really appreciate it. So last thing. If you are in the area of Providence, Rhode Island, and <laughs> maybe you are, I don't know, maybe you're a buddy, uh, my new band, Hansy, will be playing our first show March 30th at ASG20 with other new bands called There and Helpful Hands. And like between these bands, it is a literal slew of Providence, mostly I would say noise rock adjacent veterans, if that is your jam. It's the first time I have played a proper show in like three years, and I am absolutely delighted. I cannot wait. If you want to follow Hansy, we don't have much content yet, but uh, you can do so at Hansy Bansy on Instagram. <laughs> All right, so that is it for my announcements. So let's get into our main topic for today, anticipatory armor in music retail. So when I started researching the topic for this week, I was really thinking about language from like the very, very first midriff episode with Rachel Bloomberg way back when. And she talked about going into music retail stores wearing an armor. And 
I think about this all the time. And I, th- I think about it, especially like every time that I go into a new music store or really like, let's be real, kind of any like cis male dominated space. So for music retailers or maybe folks who don't have to put up an armor when entering music stores, here's what that process looks like for me. So I usually, when I'm going to go to a new store, I might look it up online and sort of like make decisions about what my like how high my defensiveness needs to be going in and like thinking then about like what kind of tactics I might need to use when entering the space so as not to invoke like some sort of discrimination or mansplaining or like in general to encourage them to treat me like I'm a human musician in the world who has an understanding of like my own wants or needs or musical desires right and like maybe even a little bit of money to buy something maybe not a lot but maybe a little all right so so then like when I'm on the way to the store I might think about like the ways I would respond if an employee or customer engages in like one of the many common tropes in music stores, right? Like you can think of, I've mentioned them here many times. If you listen to the podcast, that should be obvious. Um, But, you know, it could be like not listening when I'm telling somebody what I'm asking for. It could be like someone asking for, you know, your uh, boyfriend, like that kind of thing, right? So thinking about how I might respond. Uh, traditionally, the way I had approached this would be to try and like sit down at an amp sort of as soon as I could get when I got could when I got there, plug in, play something and then like <laughs> hopefully demonstrate that I am actually a musician. Not that I'm like Steve Vai or something like that. And nor do I think Steve Vai should be like the measure of a good guitarist. But at least I would be like addressed as a musician and not necessarily someone's girlfriend. Right. So another technique I've used is to like pretty quickly upon arrival, ask about something like vintage or obscure or something on the wall or in the pedal display case, right? As a way of like signaling that I know what I'm talking about, right? So I'm like, let's tell you, do you have any Matsumoko like used guitars, blah, 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 like something like that. And, you know, sometimes I'm actually interested in the item. Sometimes I'm not, right? Uh, it's it's just a way of me to kind of like be like, see, I, I, I know a thing. Look at me, right? Uh, <laughs> other times, a salesperson like might ask me if I'm looking for anything and I'll just say like I'm looking around and I'll try to avoid them and anyone else in the store for as long as possible. Just depends on the situation, right? Um, as I've gotten older, a few things have changed. So first of all, I generally feel more confident in my knowledge, especially in like larger chain stores where I'm like, okay, <laughs> like I probably, I, I may, may or may not know more than the person I'm actually talking to just because I've been around longer. And then also I, you know, care less about what other people think and I feel less of a need to prove myself in many of these cases. So I might not sit down and like to play something uh, because I just don't care. Uh, (laughs) The other thing is that I'm more likely as I'm older now to be ignored and treated like someone's mom and less likely to have someone like actively try to flirt with me. Um, So that's those are the major things that have changed as I've aged. And so you can kind of see how there's like this way that this adjusts based on people's identities at any particular time. So that's my experience. And I still go into like most of these establishments with my hackles up, even though I'm older. I'm still just like waiting for someone to say something awful because it's happened to me so many times before. And I say that even as someone who has worked in and I legitimately love music stores. And if you have paid attention to the podcast at all, you know that that's true. I have talked about it many times, my love for music stores, but this is, it's just something that keeps happening. So I also realize that my experience and my responses in these situations are specific because I have been playing for a long time and because I am a white cisgender woman and because I can like talk about, I, I do have enough knowledge where I can kind of like throw out a couple of words here and there. Someone's experience when they're brand new might be slightly different as well, right? So 
All right, that's my caveat. So let's talk a little bit about why the hackles. Where does this come from, right? So I've been thinking about this experience a lot also because so, so, so many of my guests have mentioned that they to have their hackles up when they're going into these spaces, right? And many of them have stated that they simply just don't go into the spaces anymore. They buy things from their friends or they buy things online like exclusively. And some of them just stick with like the same gear forever because they don't know, they don't wanna have to deal with the process of buying something new because it's just too much of a hassle and not worth it. So discrimination and sexual harassment experienced by, you know, like cis women, trans, non-binary musicians in music retail stores, as outlined in the Gender and Music Year Experiences Report, I have plenty of data demonstrating that. They're clearly common experiences, and they also extend to like things like what, what is considered street harassment or public harassment um, by other customers in a variety of retail environments, which I didn't really get into as much in there. It's more about the experiences specific to um, uh, interacting with employees, right? But that is also a big part of it as well. Um, and also like racial discrimination is a, is a very common experience, such as like people like, to, you know, the quote unquote uh, situation or scenario of shopping while black, right? Like I'm sure you've heard of that. That is another situation that comes up. So a lot of people are experiencing these in different ways. Um, and the hackles are coming from all of those combined and cumulative experiences that people have had over the years, especially in particular spaces, right? So. I began thinking about this process or what I, I, I'm calling here anticipatory armor and like how it affects or impacts someone's connection to music, to music gear, creativity, community, and in addition to like their physical and emotional well-being, right? So let's talk about the impacts of anticipatory armor. So I want you to take a second here to like relax your shoulders. Take a second, just relax your shoulders, put them down as low as you possibly can. Don't force it, but like let them just kind of sit there, right? If you're like me, your shoulders might consistently be located somewhere near your ears, even if you don't notice it. Like I do it constantly. Um, you know, especially I notice that I do this when I'm getting ready to enter a store or another space where I've experienced some sort of discrimination in the past anticipatory armor can do that, right? So what does it mean for someone's general well-being then to be in this sort of state of constant hypervigilance, right? Or hyperarousal. Even, you know, those who don't have some sort of like diagnosable PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, they might have this experience, even though maybe it's at a, like a lower level, right? So research shows that anticipating discrimination can like lead to psychological, cardiovascular stress and experiencing that regularly is likely part of the cause of racial and ethnic and like other health disparities in the US, right? Like those are all really connected. If you're experiencing this level of stress all the time, it's going to impact your mental and physical health. That's just what it is. Some researchers have even like identified what they've called like this term racial battle fatigue that sort of identifies this and it sort of talks about like the exhaustion that black people feel as a result of dealing with like sort of near constant racism and discrimination, right? You're just like every just tired all the time as a result of having to deal with this. So and that affects your uh, mental and physical health. So beyond that, 
as you know, as we've talked about here, music is powerful, right? Like it's so important and it can provide a variety of benefits to, you know, like someone's overall health and well-being. It can increase your community. It can increase your communication skills. It can decrease anxiety. What can't it do? It just has so many advantages. And if anticipatory armor creates so much stress that it's at to a degree where somebody can't access the music gear that they want or need to create, or even worse, they choose to disengage from music making altogether they can lose out then on all of those potential positive benefits, right? So it's a real problem. So in in what ways then might someone sort of like become disconnected from the tools of the trade, right, that they need and the, like the potential new sound options and like the fun, the self-expression, the anxiety reduction that they provide if they feel such like real anxiety about going into those spaces in the first place, right? So how then does this like anticipatory armor work. So preparing for discrimination or like putting on one's armor is actually protective, right? I think we all understand how that works. So in that it sort of allows someone to prepare for any negative interactions that might occur. Like there's a real reason that armor is there so that you don't get harmed. And there are two main research areas that sort of look into the behaviors and experiences related to this sort of like anticipatory armor. And one of them is sort of research on consumer behavior. So understanding like how consumers actually act in the world. A lot of that is sort of like business related research um, or economic related research. And then also research on discrimination and coping, right? So if you're at all familiar with academic research, it won't be too surprising that these two areas aren't always talking to each other. They don't always overlap. There's a big silo. So I'm going to take a minute to sort of cover a little bit of both, and you'll see why. So let's first talk about uh, anticipatory armor in consumer research. So I'm going to start here like with this area. And it is, even though it's a lot of this is consumer research, it is oftentimes connected to social psychology, which is sort of my area of research. So Kurt Lewin, who is seen as the father of social psychology, identified that theory of approach avoidance conflict, like way, way back in 1935. And approach avoidance conflict is sort of this situation where a decision is like both positive and negative in consequences at the same time. And you have to weigh out, you know, your decision making process and pursuing it like some good things about this some bad things about this, I have to make a decision, what am I going to do, right? Makes sense. So when someone really wants to try out and potentially purchase a new guitar, the benefits of the new guitar lead to approach in the situation, right? when the potential negative interactions in the store lead to avoidance. So that's the difference there. And so, as you might imagine, this has been applied to one million zillion scenarios over the years, um, not just in music or retail, but like we're going to talk a little bit specifically here about how this works in retail. So researchers have extended this approach avoidance conflict and sort of like fleshed it out in a number of ways. I had like 7,000, literally probably 100 tabs open trying like kind of like eating up this research. So I'm going to try and like consolidate it as much as possible and kind of stick to just a couple. A common and potentially useful way, I think, for framing this issue is the Morabian russell model developed by environmental psychologists Morabian and Russell, shocking, I know, in 1974. And the model essentially says that emotions determine 
how we behave in response to our environment, right? So how we feel about our environment is determined by how, you know, or how we respond is determined by how we feel, right? Um, so the emotions here are usually referred to as the PAD model, stand for pleasure, arousal. So that's like, you know, that could be excitement, frenzy, being jittered, and dominance. So pleasure, arousal, and dominance. Dominance being like a personal control in the environment. So you can tie each of these emotions to either approach or avoidance. And if an environment is pleasant, you know, I'll choose to approach it. If it is unpleasant, I then choose to avoid it, right? Makes sense. This all tracks <laughs> uh, approach behavior. It was then broken down um, by Morabian and Russell into the following behaviors. I promise this is a little bit detailed, but we'll get into some more um, about this in just a minute. So first of all, we have the desire, uh, the way that it's broken down is into the desire to physically stay in the environment, right? Like, do you want to stay in the environment? Do you not want to stay in the environment? Two, desire or willingness to look around and explore the environment. So if you're a customer or consumer, do you actually want to stick around and look and see what's there or not? Three is the desire or willingness to communicate with others in the environment, right? Are you avoiding the employees? Are you avoiding the other customers there? Um, that might be part of this as well. Four, enhancement of performance and satisfaction with task performances. So the problem with much of this consumer-based research, you can probably see here, is that it generally looks at the impact of the, like, um, and maybe you can't see it, but like, <laughs> I'll tell you, the impact of the temperature or like the layout of the store or how busy it is are generally kind of what they're focusing on here. It's really not specifically addressing the very like real experiences of customers and potential customers based on things like their identities and related discrimination. And there are places where this comes up, like they talk about affiliation and things like this. And I would say that's kind of more connected to things like hiring and that kind of thing. Like if somebody looks like you, you're going to feel connected to them. You're going to have what they call place identity. We're not going to get into that. So uh, I would also add that much of this research looks at the experiences in a particular store without looking at sort of the cumulative effects of discrimination in similar environments. Like, so how much, uh, you know, are, are, if you're going into a particular store, you are bringing with all your previous experiences, right? Like, they're treating it in many cases like every store is an individual experience, um, which I don't think is real. So they're not looking at like how much of the impact of like this leftover discrimination that you might have from a previous bad experience and say like a guitar shop transfers to the next door that you visit, right? Like that's not part of it. All right, shout out to mid-riff sponsor Stompbox Sonic. Stompbox Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration. Specializing in effects pedals, they offer a curated collection of companies large and small, some locally crafted, and some assembled from around the world. Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. By working collaboratively through one-on-one -on -one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. They create a comfortable, judgment-free environment for all musicians where sonic experimentation is encouraged. Whether you play guitar, bass, trumpet to harp, roads, and circuit bent, speak and spell, Stompbox Sonic will work with you to find the right effects to fit your project. Check out stompboxsonics.com for more. Holcomb Guitars are sponsors of Midriff. Nick Holcomb builds beautiful custom guitars to your specifications and has a mobile guitar repair setup too. That means he will come to you in Rhode Island or Massachusetts, either fixing your guitar on site or picking up and dropping it off when he's done. Who does that? Literally no one. No one does that. 
no one except for Nick. He has set up, prepared, and modified many of my own instruments, and he does great work. I also like knowing that we share values on important topics, and I'm guessing if you are listening, that is important to you too. That and not being treated like a baby. Nick will treat you like a regular old human person in the world who deserves respect. Who knew it was possible? If you want to learn more, check out HolcombGuitars.com or follow him on Instagram at HolcombGuitars. Let's dig in a little bit around anticipatory armor in research on discrimination and coping. Even much of the research on discrimination is related to coping with discrimination without necessarily focusing on the preparatory actions for the future, right? It's like, what happens after the fact? And But, you know, there's, there is still some research relevant to this conversation um, and some that I think is really closely related. So let's get into that. The closest similar phenomenon I could find in the research related here, related to discrimination, was... Uh, that of armored coping. So researchers Robinson, Wood, and their colleagues in 2015 sort of interviewed black women about their experiences with microaggressions. And one theme identified was that like that of like armored coping where individuals basically felt the need to be hyper aware of their actions and interactions in order to be able to address microaggressions when they arose, right? That makes sense. So uh, you can see the use of that armor term in there, right? Coping research then I would say more broadly, sort of breaks responses into um, uh, to harm into proactive coping and what is sometimes called passive coping or reactive coping. I'm going to call it passive coping here because I think it's a little clearer. Proactive coping generally involves like greater agency. Um, you're actually doing something that might make a change to make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, that could be like calling a store's manager after experiencing negative treatment. So whereas like Passive coping might look like trying to not think about a particularly threatening situation, like just ignoring it in that way. All right. So there are a variety of reasons to engage in passive coping. Research tends to find that passive coping leads to poorer emotional outcomes than proactive coping, which is likely due to the lack of agency, as I'd mentioned, that one has in the situation. So there's you know, reasons for both, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, but I think it's just worth noting that there's, you know, generally proactive coping is seen as more positive. All right, so researchers DeLapp and Williams in 2019 applied a very common model for proactive coping, specifically to the anticipation of racist interactions among black participants. So the model outlines like the following steps that folks undergo when they anticipate discrimination. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go through each one and sort of apply it to music retail, right? So first we have resource accumulation. We have uh, two is attention recognition. Three is initial appraisal. Four is preliminary coping efforts. And five is elicit feedback and reappraising. So what does this mean then? And then like, what does that look like in the case of music retail? So resource accumulation is the process of gaining information or support needed to manage like a particular encounter. So in my experience, this meant researching the store in advance. It's important to note, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gaining resources, right? It's important to note, I think that like individuals must have the time and the energy available to engage in resource accumulation in the first place. So if someone is like too busy or too stressed or something happens very quickly, they might not be able to access the resources needed to prepare. So they might not even get to get into that space at all, right? So attention recognition then, number two, is the physical experience of the hackles, right? So it's like the physical and emotional response that you're having. So when someone is vigilant or sensitive to their environment to like pick up on potential threats. 
I get these hackles when I go into a store website or social media and then uh, and see exclusively white men, for example. So I might have this like response that is like an actual physical response when I see that. Initial appraisal then is when an individual tries to identify the meaning of the threat. So in my case, this is when I note that like the lack of representation in the marketing might mean that <laughs> the particular store might be a place where I'll have a negative experience as a result of my gender. And I might have, uh, you know, if somebody has really good representation, I might have the opposite response, right? So that's my initial appraisal of what the situation is, right? It's kind of putting meaning to the, you know, hackles that are happening. Like, where is this coming from? What does it mean, right? Preliminary coping is the preparation that someone then engages in to manage the potential threat. So in my case, that might mean mentally preparing for my response to like the tropes that I had talked about before. If I like encounter them in the store or playing guitar, like to prove myself once I arrive. Those are all preliminary coping responses. Other examples might be like altering one's appearance, right? Like wearing, dressing a particular way or making oneself likable through like the way that you talk um, or the language you use or trying to interact with employees as little as possible. <laughs> That's another way, right? So all of this to kind of keep yourself away from the potential threat. And then once an individual has more interactions with the threat or the stressor, eliciting feedback and reappraisal is used then to adjust one's coping given additional information. So you learn more information and you change your strategy, right? In my case, that could mean that I might go into a store and play the guitar, but realize that it's not enough to keep someone from mansplaining. So I start talking about like germanium versus silicone diodes or whatever to like further display my knowledge. I still don't really understand diodes, by the way. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully, you know, the person will like finally believe that I know what I'm talking about or I just walk away and ignore him really realizing that he's not going to stop no matter what I say. And that's another potential response. So I'm sort of reappraising and adjusting my strategy because I'm like, oh, doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter what I do. So as you can see, the model here of proactive coping pretty quickly maps onto my experience in music stores and maybe it maps into your experience as well. And as we're closing out on this discussion of coping, I want to note that people need to do what they feel comfortable with in that moment, right? This, you know, as I mentioned already, if someone's feeling stressed, they might not be capable to respond proactively in the situation. And if they don't feel like their behavior will have an impact, they might not want to respond at all. And there's no, this is not like a victim blaming sort of situation. It's just like people have to do what they can do in that moment with, you know, the resources that they have. So that's, that's it. So who is responsible for anticipatory armor then? If you take anything away from this episode, it should be this. The fact that anticipatory armor exists is a major problem. It has a major impact on people's lives. And if you're a retailer, it probably has an impact on your bottom line as well, right? I just spent probably 10 hours of my life researching this topic, right? And, you know, all the topics I've mentioned at the beginning of this podcast really shouldn't be necessary. You know, they take time and energy away from my life. And of course, like this isn't just about me. You can think about like the collective amount of stress and harm caused to all of the musicians who have to experience anticipatory armor on a regular basis, right? And like the amount of time and energy lost simply because a store couldn't be bothered to think about it, right? I think a lot of people don't realize the degree to which this can actually affect people and can affect, like, uh, you know, society, can affect the music industry, you know, affect people that you know. And I know that the people, hopefully, that are listening to this episode don't want to contribute to that and they want to help make change around that. So let's talk about what that looks like. So 
what can stores do to prevent anticipatory armor? So I've written and spoken a ton about this in the past, about the ways that like retailers can create better spaces. As I'd mentioned, I ran an online course specifically about like that as well. But I'll outline it again here because it is so important. So if people want to decrease folks' need for anticipatory armor in their space, this is how you can start. So first of all, diversify representation on your website and social media. So this signals then to potential customers that even if your current employee base is like predominantly cisgender, heterosexual white men, you are at least aware that representation is an issue. And I know a lot of people talk about tokenism and they get worried about that, and I think that's a real thing. I've written about that as well. I talked about that as well. Feel free to read about that. There's lots of ways to prevent that. And um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> two, diversify your hiring. And that is related here as well. So uh, the tokenism piece, at least. There are really like a myriad of ways, though, that you can do this from like your outreach and recruitment, your job descriptions, hiring process, the benefits you provide. Pretty much every part of hiring can be improved to increase the diversity of the folks who work uh, in your store, right? It's, there's so many different ways to do it. But I know that it is a challenge for folks, especially if this is sort of a new topic, right? Or if they are really kind of starting from zero. Totally get that. If you have any questions, um, I have written about it a lot, but please, please reach out if you have questions. So three, be clear about your values. So you know, if you're actively trying to create a more welcoming and inclusive environment in your store, just say it. If this is something that you're doing, say it on your website, your social media, and signage on your store. Everywhere you go, put it on your T-shirts, do whatever you need to do. It's going to symbolize to people that you mean it, that you really want to create a space that is welcoming. And all of these things talk to each other too, right? I feel like I say this, all of these things pretty frequently, but they all kind of reinforce each other, right? So that also means like you're not tokenizing somebody if you're really doing all this stuff, you're demonstrating the ways that you are not tokenizing people by saying, here's what we're doing and here's why this is important for us. All right, four, train your employees. The last thing you want is for someone to have like lowered their hackles as a customer or as a potential employee, only to have all their negative experiences reinforced by bad interactions with your employees, or in the case of new employees, their coworkers, right? Give them the information they need to succeed in creating an environment that is heckle-free, right? <laughs> That's what we all want. So five, be a positive role model. So I know if you're listening to this podcast, like you want to create a better space and negative experiences for many folks are so normal in retail spaces that, you know, the bad stores can create a reputation, a negative reputation for the good stores. And, it, you know, if you're positive and active and creating a better space, you can help challenge this normalization and create a better industry, right? So anticipatory armor is really a daily part of life for musicians from marginalized groups and especially in music retail environments. So as a retailer, the last thing you want is someone to have a sense of like dread at the idea of entering your store. Understanding this experience and doing what you can to prevent it is crucial in the competitive retail environment. We've talked about this a ton here, right? Focusing on the positive environment and community that like brick and mortar retail stores can provide, it's going to set your store above, right? You're going to really shine bright for folks. And I've seen it time and time again for the folks that are doing it well. It can help give people back their time and energy, like to create new things and have more joy in the world. I know this sounds like a lot, but like, I feel like this is a real thing. And I know that most retailers want this like better world. People say it to me all the time. So I hope that it's, you know, if that's you, that you'll take the time and effort really needed to make that change. 
All right. If you're interested or want to share this, you can check out my full blog post on this topic, which includes links to all the citations and the research for this episode. If you want to keep up with the podcast between episodes, you can do so on Midriff's Instagram or Facebook pages, or you can join my newsletter. Check the show notes for all of those links. So many links. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.